Welcome to the Educate US podcast with your host, Nick Saveri, Dr. Stacy Schultz, and Dr. Patrice Fenton. Three former teachers and administrators talking about a wide range of topics happening in education. Time to educate us. Thank you, of course, for listening to the Educate US podcast. Proud member of Leon Media Network. Make sure, of course, you are always downloading our show across all all podcast platforms, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are indeed listening to us via Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a five-star review because that always helps. And of course, you can always email the show and make sure your voice is heard by email. And our email address simply is theeducateusshow at gmail.com. Once again, theeducateusshow at gmail.com. No funny spaces or characters other than the at symbol to our email domain. Um, Speaking of domains, technology, all that good stuff. That brings obviously you an exciting conversation we're going to have today about AI and really big picture innovation. But before we get into that, just connecting with my teammates, my co-hosts coming off of a exciting, fun, relaxing, tense, a lot comes up this time of year for everyone. Um, tiring is the, is the word I use for myself, but um, Patrice, to you first, how are you doing? It's been a it's been a, just a whirlwind of the last few days with the holidays and family and everything going on. I know last week you were swamped as well. So how are you coming up for air and where, how are you doing? What, what energy do you bring today? Well, I'm good today. I, I took last week to rest. Well, I shouldn't say rest, not completely. I, I did fall back from my typical activities. I took a little uh, fasting from Zoom and meetings and the like, and it has served me well. So I'm able to come into this week uh, a lot more fresh and rejuvenated than I was. Um, and now I'm just trying to make it to the home through the home stretch of the last weeks of the year, which is as crazy to even say that. But um, just trying to get, make it through till that Christmas break, so I can have a little bit more respite and then go at it in uh, the start of our new new calendar year. Stacey, before we go to you, Patrice something I appreciate about what you just said was the idea of recognizing that you needed to hit pause, step away from zoom, just better advocate for yourself. For our listeners, what's, what's sort of the internal voice or what comes up for you that sort of prompts you? Cause I think oftentimes like the cognitively we struggle with sort of separating ourselves from the work to, to ourselves and like listening very, inter- very intently to what we're telling ourselves as far as the need to adjust, step back, something has to be different. If you don't mind, what was sort of the internal dialogue that you were having that, that made, that made you realize that, you know, this coming period, something has to be different. Well, I, and Stacy kind of noticed this too. There's like a pattern in my life, like an overarching pattern around this time of year, October ish, November, where I just need it. So that's one. Two, I had a flurry of activities and I'm trying to get better about preempting so I don't get to the overwhelm point. So I know if I've got a super busy two, three week span, I need to rest. But then also the the thing to like really get to the heart of your question, when I start to see that I'm not really finding joy or looking forward to with like positive anticipation to the things that usually bring me joy, then I know I need to stop. So you know, there were certain things that I had in my, my, on my plate, connecting with certain folks and doing certain aspects of my work that I usually look forward to. And I, when I thought about it, it just made me tired. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I need to stop. And so I'm, I'm getting better about actually stopping. Stacy, to you. 
First of all, I just took a few things away from what Patrice was sharing that I'm like, oh, I, I need to mark that down. Fasting <laughs> from Zoom. I love that. Thank you for that, introducing that into my life. Um, but also not just the, um, so you were saying about the actual stopping, you know, because for me, I think I'm always like, well, if I just push through a little longer, then I can take that break. Um, so I really appreciated how you were sharing, like, I'm actually stopping. Yes. So that's a, another invitation. So thank you for that, Patrice. Um, and yes, it's Lucas's birthday, our a guest that was recently on our show. <laughs> um, and so we, yes, as soon as we are off, we're going to continue the celebration in which Lucas says, well, he has to do a pre-celebration. And then a week-long celebration, so and then a party. So he likes to really figure out how can he really increase the length of this celebrating, which, you know, I I don't hate. I think I love that idea of how do you continue to celebrate, you know, yourself, your journey, your growth. I mean, I just I'm I'm loving that. So I'm all about invitations today, apparently. I'm taking them all. I'm taking note as we're stepping away from this year and into a new year. I think that's something I want to take note of. How about you, Nick? How are you doing? Thank you for asking. You know, it's funny because as as you were sharing, I'm already thinking ahead to, you know, obviously this conversation we're going to play for you all in a moment excites all of us. Um, and as you were sharing, I hadn't thought, it hadn't occurred to me to, to you know, sort of get into my own head for a minute. Um I'm good. Actually, you know, earlier today, I talked to an upcoming guest of the show, someone I reconnected with who I had known, um, you know, my coaching work. And she rightfully brought this up that it's probably been a decade since we've actually spoken. Um, and it was awesome just to reconnect with her. And we're excited to bring her story and the work that she's doing to you all uh, relatively soon. Uh, but I'm good. No, the, you know, the holiday itself, uh, my, my family was broken up a little bit. You know, my, you know, my wife was working that day, but we got a chance to all come back together, the four of us, you know, that Friday. So it's just been a lot of time of, you know, being apart, coming back together. You know, we got the Christmas tree up. Um, I'm always just happiest this time of year. It's funny to say that because with a reduction in sunlight, I'm mindful of like trying to absorb as much sunlight as I can, but I am always happier because, you know, with the little ones, they're just extreme from now until, you know, until Christmas and even past that, they, I just feed off their energy. Once, once the tree goes up, you know, Alexa's doing her job and playing music and, you know, even the little one now knows enough to, and it's, it's funny, this all feeds into AI. Even the little one knows enough to give commands to this little robot in our home to play music, a robot that many of us have privacy concerns aside. And, it's something we always have to be concerned of, but think about the entry point. It's, it's this little device. You can tell it to do something. It does it right. But what happens when we expand past that and we want to perform tasks that in the professional space could make our lives easier, could potentially replace some of the professions that humans need to do or need to step into. And what does that produce for all of us? This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. 
Today, we have an amazing guest here with us, Abanga Umana. He's an innovation strategist focusing on new ventures, both as an entrepreneur and he partners with other organizations as well. Abanga, welcome to our show. Thank you. Abanga, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so my degree area is organizational psychology. Um, when I started off in school, I was very interested in why as someone born in the US, I had a whole other side of my family born in Africa that was in extreme poverty and struggling their whole life. And I was successful living in middle-class luxury in the US and that was confusing. Uh, and I wanted to do something about that. So I started off studying oil politics and other really hard, really difficult problems <laughs> that seemed impossible. Uh, and realized that there was this thing called innovation, where you can actually come up with new ideas uh, and think differently about the problems that we have and use those new solutions to have a third way, not just is it this way or that way, but let me come up with a new way to solve this problem um, and spent my career working on that. So two, I guess, big themes would be on the potential of people uh, working in human resources, including recruiting, leadership development, um, built a leadership school in India for Satyam, um, wrote a book about it with um, a chief learning officer called Leadership Without Borders, uh, and launched a recruiting company in Kenya where we worked in about 50 countries across emerging markets, um, recruiting several thousand people, and also building um, HR software. Then the other sort of big theme of my career is a new venture development. So working with mostly large companies, but also uh, small ones on designing and coming up with um, new businesses, new products, everything from how can we turn our expertise in conservation into a revenue generating business or um, how can I know everything going on with my package anywhere in the world at any time if I'm moving pharmaceuticals or any other high value good? So a lot of big problems for uh, companies and building independent businesses out of those and then thinking about how to unleash potential in people. Bing, as you mentioned just earlier about just recognizing within your family, just a very noticeable difference in the, the lives that members of your family lead. In the work you're doing in the innovation space, do you find that in that access to innovation can sometimes be challenging because of the different places and different socioeconomic levels that people are approaching innovation? Or is it more about the fact that innovation as a concept is attainable to anyone, but there are barriers that people have to recognize either at a country, at a national level, local level, um, or even at an educational level that may that may potentially stand in the way? You've probably heard this um, getting to a cliche, uh, which is that um, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunities are not. Um, this is very real. There are many extremely smart, extremely talented people in all, all over the world, uh, and they simply don't have access to put their skills to good use. Just as an example, the last time I was in Lagos, Nigeria, my driver for my Uber was an applied mathematician 
um, with two master's degree, 10 years of experience working on oil rigs. And um, he hadn't worked in a professional job for two or three years. Um, and this is proven out in the data. I'm sure you folks have seen it, but when people move from a place like Nigeria to a place like the United States, they thrive. All sorts of job opportunities, growth, uh, net worth increases, uh, potential lifetime earnings increases radically. Um, and there are many reasons for this. A lot of it is the context that you're in. Some of it is just um, the compounding benefit of experience. Uh, there's an economist, Paul Romer, that talks about the value of experience versus direct education teaching. And he's found in his data compounded over a lifetime that just applying your skills over and over again in challenging circumstances has 50%, sometimes double the impact on your ability to grow and contribute to the economy. So these, when he's spending three years working in Uber, someone else is spending three years working in a professional setting. He's just getting further and further behind in his potential impact. Um, and that's really painful to see. So I am dedicating my life to try and help figure out how to solve that problem. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that um, perspective and data as well to support what you're sharing um, and real life experience, which is what we we really value. We're really curious um, as you've worked in this innovation space about your experience with this ever hot topic these days of AI mm -hmm. um, and sort of how it's impacting the workplace. And obviously, you know, the show where I'll focus on education. So mm -hmm. we do want to we want to speak specifically about the impact on the education space, but also just to start us off, just thinking more writ large about AI and the impact that you're seeing it's having on the workplace and how things are shifting um, there. There's so many different angles on that. Um, I'll try to pick a few <laughs> to come in. Uh, the first is that AI has been around for a long time. Um, so we're seeing it encroach into the workplace um, in different ways over time. But the interesting thing about now is it's easier or more accessible to most people to talk to the computer and tell it to do things. Um, so this latest innovation of LLMs, large language models, allows any person like you and I to just make a request and the computer knows what to do, which is unusual because in the past you had to know its language, which is why we have all these coding languages. That's a big unlock. Um, the second related one is now that people can give detailed instructions to a computer in their own words, it's way cheaper to do things. So things that would be on our development roadmap that might be nine months away can now be done in a couple of weeks. Uh, so the cost and the time to build new things has gone way down, which means that it's opened up. It's like a new revolution, like when the mobile phone launched or when the internet came out. It's a new revolution of building lots of new things. When there's those huge cuts in cost and time, uh, you get a lot of new people coming up with new ideas to solve problems that they didn't consider possible before because it would be too expensive or take them too much time. They can't put the team together or the resources together, or maybe they just don't have the brain space to dedicate that much time on one issue. Now, 
you can you can do many things much faster. Um, not saying that the solutions people are coming up with are all perfect, but um, it's possible to experiment. So what we're seeing now is just a um, bunch of innovation and creativity uh, across all different sectors trying to solve problems that they just had to put on the later part of the now next later map, um, which is pretty exciting because uh, it it's the potential of you know pulling sort of our dreams and wishes closer into reality. Meg, I love that positive. Um, opportunity <laughs> that you're really naming yeah. here, right and, and we know we all yeah. know right there are there are those really positive where we can create and I remember I used to work with an educator and his whole thing was well we can create or we can consume right and the, I really hear that and what you're saying is like tapping into all kinds of new um, talent really right like it's giving access to people and their thinking and perspective and creativity However, we also know there's these fears looming out there, right? Um, and there's also drawbacks um, that are are ever present as technology moves so quickly in a society. What are some things that you are really paying attention to or that come to mind for you when you think about uh, some of the fears that are surfacing and or drawbacks that are present? I want to try to connect two things you said that I think are really interesting. I love this idea of create versus consume. And I actually think the consumption mindset is one of the major drivers of fear, which is if I don't have any control over what's happening and I just need to take whatever some random engineer happens to come up with because they think it's important. And hey, maybe they're not from my culture. Maybe they don't have my values. Maybe they are not interested in the same problems I am, but yet I'm forced to just say, do I want engineer one's solution or engineer two solutions, neither of which resonate with me? That creates fear. But if I'm a creator and I can say, I want to solve my problems my way, and I can go ahead and do that because now it's affordable and possible for me to do that, or I have the skill, or more importantly these days, the literacy, the technical literacy to actually solve it then I don't have fear, but I have empowerment. And maybe I have a little bit of ambiguity on how I'm gonna get there, how fast I'm gonna get there, but I'm not living under someone else's control. So I have a lot more um, agency uh, in what, what can be done and how it's done. Um, that seems to, I mean, we can talk about more details like bias and other things like that, but I would argue that the consumption mindset is one of the biggest drivers in fear. So one of the industries I work with a lot is human resources. Uh, and they're thinking about how to hire people, how to develop people, how to build skills, similar to education, not exactly the same, but um, they attend to some of those same uh, topics. And um, my message to them is, instead of going out and shopping for AI based on um, performance metrics or what can save you money or time, things of that nature, focus on envisioning the team you wanna build, the workplace you wanna have, the experience you wanna have. What do I want my job to be like? What do I want my team to be like? What performance do we wanna have? How do we wanna work together over one, two, three years? And then go challenge tech to meet your expectations. Go find and ask technology firms to meet your needs and deliver your vision. Don't wait 
protect to define what your employee experience should be. Um, this is sort of how we approach social media and we can see the consequences. We let it manipulate us and push us around instead of taking ownership for how do I want to connect with my peers and friends? Do I want to connect with them through a newsfeed? Maybe not. <laughs> so I should instead shape uh, the experience that I want to have and then go make tech um, to design for me. Is the risk with AI then about the, not necessarily the misnomer, but maybe the the false assumption that it may help spark creativity? Because AI, at least in its current incarnation, is based on the idea of what already exists and mining within that to create something new. Is that part of the potential risk? Um, I think I agree with you partially, but I also do disagree a little bit, or maybe I have one little uh, twist in, in my opinion on what you're saying. Um, so you may have read um, Thomas Kuhn, who wrote about the theory of scientific revolutions. He talked about, and many other researchers have shown this over the years, he talked about um, every scientific, every new scientific idea is the combination of previous scientific ideas applied to a new context, uh, which is why you end up having simultaneous discoveries, the same new idea in different places in the world with no contact with one another. Um, so this is happening all the time. Everything that we create new is some unique context combined with some previous cultural knowledge. And then out of that emerges something we hadn't thought of before or a different way of thinking about a problem. Um, that is also true within AI and among different AIs and then also between humans and AI, meaning it has a lot of information, but it's not necessarily good at picking and choosing what to tell you unless you ask. It will come up with a generic answer if you ask a question, but if you give it more and more nuanced context, if you shape exactly what you're looking for, and then you combine your perspective as a human with whatever knowledge the AI has, your unique life experience and knowledge uh, from uh, education, um, you end up with something new. So it can be used for creativity, but you also just have to recognize how creativity works. It's not just um, go create this thing with no context and no information. This also has to do with the actual mechanism for how it works. It's a statistical model taking lots and lots of data and coming up with the best possible answers. So if you give it less context and less specifics of what you want, it will the answers will be even more generic. But the more you narrow in on something specific that you're looking for, the statistical model is able to pull in a more unique point of view. You can also ask it to take different points of view and then have those points of view clash with each other. So have ask the AI to not just be one, um, perspective, but say, okay, I want you to create 200 different perspectives and then fight it out or, you know, come up with teams and sort of like a red shirting uh, itself. Um, and then you as a human with your unique life experience and point of view, you can also weigh in and play a role in that. And the ideal would be that working together, you're able to be more inventive and more unique and the perspectives that come out the other side. Um, I do think that if you ask an AI a generic question or leave it on its own, 
without putting in a lot of context, you will get silly or banal uh, responses and it won't be creative at all. <laughs> it's sort of a waste of your time interacting with it that way. I appreciate just historically what you broke down in terms of, you know, science also often brings this up, like it's based on what currently exists. So it's not so much the ethical dilemma there. Um, it's not a dilemma really at all. I mean, that's really how evolution works. Um, right. I think about that often in the in the art space, because right now what we're seeing is AI generated art. And then there's that pushback from artists of, well, wait a minute, that's already in existence. And A, are we attributing this to others? And B, are you running the risk of sort of just taking my job by you know, piecing together the work of others? Um, on that subject of ethics, though, what came up for me as a follow-up is, what what becomes the role of governance? I asked this because I just read recently a story about Sports Illustrated, where mm. it was discovered that writer, writers and stories that were writing were all AI generated. And an online publication asked about it, and then everything was pulled down from SI, uh, realizing that it got caught. Mm. Are we in a situation now where, because I agree with you, I mean, AI, I mean, from Siri, everything all has been in place. But where becomes the role of governance there? Is that a private matter? Is that where like governments have to get involved? We're hearing people appearing before Congress pleading actually about like there's going to have to be some regulation. Where do you live? Where do you live on that? Where do you stand on it? Do I believe there has to be regulation? Definitely. There should be with any new technology. Do I think we know what regulation we need? Um, not yet, but uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. What has to happen is a um, concerted effort for different uh, institutions and people with different interests to weigh in on the consequences. We don't even know the consequences because like we were saying earlier, there's lots of new things being built and the implications of which we haven't seen yet because they haven't been invented. Uh, so what would be ideal is continuous attention to the impact and consequences of what people are building and also representatives of different interests and parties trying to you know, protect themselves from being injured uh, by um, any particular solution that people come up with. So I think it has to happen. And ideally it happens with as much dialogue as possible because we really have no idea <laughs> what, we can't exactly predict the future um, we are also in a hype cycle, which is the phase of innovation where we expect it to do the most and it will almost certainly do less than what we think today. So over the next three to five years, we'll see that some of the ideas, many, if not most of the ideas that people are coming up with are not actually uh, that much better than what currently exists or they're not worth the cost or they're not worth the effort of changing the way we do things. But some things will change. We don't know for sure what those will be yet, um, but we have to pay attention to what's sticky and what's not. That's also part of why I really like the creators versus consumers um, dichotomy that uh, you brought up, Stacey, because if more of us are creators and at the very least we're literate consumers that have a strong point of view on what we want to succeed and what we don't, we can also help shape what wins coming out of the hype cycle by choosing and promoting um, the tools that are more useful and more socially or pro-social. 
more socially aligned uh, with what we want. In terms of our own business, um, we focus on listening to people. So everything we do is human-centered um, and stakeholder-centered, meaning we talk to the end user uh, and all the stakeholders in the ecosystems that we might affect to try to understand what they want, what they don't want, and how we can best fit into their lives in a way that benefits as many parties as possible. Um, in terms of uh, what information we use, all the information we use is information that people have said is okay to use. Uh, so I know that when artists are complaining, it's usually because these companies are looking at their work and using it and representing the content that they're making as if it were not based on that work or they're not sharing where that information comes from. So that's not something uh, that we can do. All our information is when it comes in to the AI, um, we talk with and get approval from the people who create that information before we use it. And then coming out on the other side, we're not hiding whether or not the result is coming from an artificial intelligence or a person. Uh, most of the time, the decisions that are made by systems we use are made in collaboration. I don't think I can think of a case where it's ever made just by the AI and it can act on its own. Um, that said, uh, whenever a result comes out of the machine, I think pretending and publishing something and saying that, you know, this came from a human when it didn't is <laughs> obviously unethical. Uh, so we wouldn't do that. Yeah, and kind of along the lines with the ethical considerations, as I mentioned before, you know, we are an education-focused podcast and thinking a lot about uh, AI's presence in our schools. Um, and I, something you said a moment ago, just thinking about like the level of creativity that you, the human, have to have in order to get the most out of these different um, platforms and things. And I'm hearing now like, there's like prompt engineering is a thing, right? So you have to think creatively about what you're putting in or think about what you're giving out. So when I think about that, I think about, well, what are the skills now that need to be taught in schools so that young people can really take advantage of things like ChatGPT and others? Um, mm -hmm. So curious about, um, when we think about schools and AI's presence in schools, like what are some of the potential like upsides, but also potential downsides that could be associated with AI's presence in like our classrooms? Um, without naming any specific company, I'll just comment on how people are doing AI development for education right now. And it is a lot of prompt engineering, like you're saying, but because it it's sort of like, um, is it, it in school, in a classroom, you can design um, a T-chart or T-table and it has you know, two options with the title and an image and you have to fill it out. You can do that or you can have little half sentences or phrases or uh, tips you know, on the side saying what you should put on each side of the T-chart. And it's obviously a lot easier <laughs> to do a Mad Lib than it is to start with a blank canvas. Uh, so you'll see a lot of difference in performance of the student if you have one model or the other. However, what you also might know as an educator, and feel free to comment, you have more experience in this than me, but um, 
from my limited experience, what you'll also see is a lot more of shaping how the other person is thinking about the answer um, than you might have intended. Those prompts actually do quite a lot to shaping the mental model and don't lead to as much diversity in terms of what people come up with. It's certainly easier and you can get better answers if you're looking for something specific, but the range is gonna be narrower because you've done some work in shaping how they think about the problem. This is the case with AI. So a lot of the AIs, they will help you as a teacher, say, generate new content for your class by pre-prompting you with dropdowns that help you, I guess, write your prompt in a more sophisticated way. So you could ask a question of um, generate a reading assignment for my class, but instead of doing that, they'll have a set of pre-prompts like, um, I want it to be fifth grade level. Uh, I want it to focus on these types of reading skills, et cetera. And by doing that, the result that the AI produces is almost always better. It's more specific. It's more um, uh, closely aligned to a specific, you know, grading um, or skill area that you want, um, and it is going to box you in as a teacher into that way of thinking about what the assignment is. So when you tell the machine, "I want it to be fifth grade level." Whose concept of fifth grade level is that? You don't know. Um, when we say reading at a fifth grade level, do we know if that is focused on a particular type of skill? Is it undervaluing certain skills, overvaluing certain skills when I put in that pre-prompt? You don't know. So by using these pre-prompts, this is kind of how we let technology push us around. By going ahead and using those pre-prompts that almost certainly save you time, and definitely get you a better output from the machine, you are allowing the machine's conception or the people who built it, the designers of the machine, their concept of leveling shape how you teach. And this is a huge risk of pulling you away from um, maybe a better way of teaching that type of content. It's certainly going to pull you away from um, this goal of differentiation because you're not thinking about the levels of learning on an individual basis or even in segments, you're thinking about it in some vague sense of what fifth grade level means dictated by someone else behind the scenes that you can't actually see. Um, so I would say that's a massive risk is being overly bought into the time-saving um, features that these tools are offering you and not thinking more deeply about the outcome you want and the exact nature of it. I've seen a, quite a few teachers who's just whole cloth reject content generation because of this. They're like, it's not a good enough. It's not experiential enough. It's not differentiated enough. It's not nuanced enough. And I don't know enough about how it's defining um, these terms um, like skills, for example. Um, to trust uh, the result. Um, so uh, that's a risk. In terms of upside, obviously, if there are things that you want to um, produce or understand, um, it can process a lot more data 
a lot faster um, than any human could. And we all know teachers are insanely busy. They don't have time to be generating all sorts of reports and doing all sorts of analysis and coming up with a unique assignment for every student every half hour of the day. <laughs> so that's not possible. So these machines can help with that. Um, but um, this is what I say in the HR industry as well. Every, every time you think about technology, including AI, coming into your work, recognize that it's an agent and you are an agent and the work is in relationship, the relationship, collaborative relationship between you. And it has its own limitations and models of thinking and so do you. And you just have to understand that interaction. Every time you allow um, a machine to have a job, it does create downside risk. So you have to think about what that might be and then design against that. Um, so if you use like, a, I'll just give one example. If you, Uber has an AI manager, which allows you to um, distribute tasks, which are rides to different drivers instantaneously. That's amazing. It saves a lot of time. It's super efficient. I can assign a job to a person who's actually there <laughs> instead of someone across town. It saves a ton of time. What does it, what's the downside risk of that? That people don't have any autonomy about their work. So you, you increase the risk of people being um, essentially just taking orders about every single detail of their day, which nobody likes. So the way to counter that is to increase the amount of self-management that a driver has. So they can choose when and where they work, they can choose if they accept the ride or not, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not saying it's perfect, but understanding how to give that person those choices, just recognizing that it helps you counter the downside risk of having an AI working with a driver. Um, that's gonna happen in schools. So we need to say, hey, if I say, find me a fifth grade level reading assignment, what are the downside risks of working with the machine that way? Is there something that I can do to counter that to make it, to give me the benefit of producing assignments quickly or differentiating lots of different assignments very fast with the say overly narrow definition of the kind of skill I'm teaching? How can I diversify say the way of defining those skills? Um, when I'm prompting the machine. Uh, so this would require either the designers and teachers, designers of the technology and the teachers to work more closely together to say, well, what do we mean by this? And expose that a little bit more. So to have what's called in the industry explainability. When I am saying fifth grade level, can it explain to me what it means by fifth grade level? Can it give me the sources of where it came up with the idea of fifth grade level and then allow me to click into them and see, ah, this is what it means by that. Do I agree with that? Do I not? That'd be one way. The other way would be to allow you more and more ability to personalize that to your teaching opinion. So I want to be able to select fifth grade level, but I want fifth grade level to mean something specific to me. Um, and so I want to be able to shape that specific prompt better and then save it for future reference. So that would just be giving more power <clears throat> to the teacher to both understand what's going on, but also participate. 
Well, thank you again, Evanga. Where can our listeners follow you and learn more about, you know, the the interesting, innovative and entrepreneurial work that you're doing? Um, the best, best place is on LinkedIn. I'm Evanga Omana uh, on there. Uh, one of the founders of Brave, that's my company. So if you find an Evanga Omana with Brave, that's me. And um, I am just starting to post a newsletter called We Are All Agents about this, mm-hmm. how we can take more agency, act more, build more together. Um, so you can follow that if you want to hear my thoughts on it. Thank you for listening to the Educate Us podcast. Subscribe to the show, available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please, please, please leave us a review or comment wherever you can. We want to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, or just want to be part of the conversation, email us at theeducateusshow at gmail.com. This has been a production of Leon Media Network. I'm Nick Saveri. I'm Patrice Benton. And I'm Stacey Schultz. We'll see you next time.